You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm John Glenhill. To say that there's a problem with the way prescription drugs are priced in the United States is an understatement. Drug pricing is actually kind of a dumpster fire. And it's easy to ignore if you have good insurance or if you don't have chronic conditions that need to be managed carefully. It can also be easy to tune out. The process is complicated and opaque. There are a lot of factors, ranging from your own personal circumstances to state laws and patents and much, much more. It's a lot to keep straight, but it's worth shining a spotlight on because the stakes are so high. It was exhausting. I didn't sleep through the night for the first 10 years of his life. That's Hillary Koch. She's an opinion columnist, and she's also a mom. You set alarms, you check their blood sugar. If they're low, you wake them up, give them juice, give them yogurt. If their blood sugar is high, you have to give them a shot and give them insulin. Hillary's son, Leo, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when he was two and a half years old. She told me what it's been like to manage his care. At school, you are terrified because someone's having a birthday. And can they have a cupcake or a cookie like everyone else? We live in Maine. If he wants to go outside and play in the snow, his body has to work harder because it's burning through so many carbohydrates so fast just to keep itself warm. And so my job as a parent was to try to give him the most normal life that I could so that he didn't have a sense of of not being normal. Um, But it it, it was nearly impossible. Today, Leo is 16, and now he plays an active role in managing his care. I sat down with Hillary to find out more about diabetes and to hear about her experience caring for a child who requires insulin to survive. She started out telling me about a typical day. There's a great saying in the community, your diabetes may vary, everybody's is different, and every day is different. You can try to eat the same thing every day, you can try to do the same thing every day, And diabetes will always surprise you and always screw it up. (laughs) Um, Hormones affect your blood sugar. Stress affects your blood sugar. He had midterms this week. He had to sit at a three. He had to stop two midterm exams and couldn't take one entirely. 
was probably all stress-related because his blood sugar was just so wicked high. Um, so it's never the same, and you just have to fly by the seat of your pants. But if you know someone with type 1 diabetes, like they're doing this all in their head, silently, all day long, all night long. They're constantly thinking about diabetes, and around you, they're acting like it's all just fine, and it's not fine. If you don't mind getting into the financial piece of it, how much do you typically pay for a vial of insulin? So right now, we're doing okay. okay. Right now, we have really, really good insurance. And right now, when we pick up three months of insulin, we might be paying we might be paying $50 for three months of insulin. Um, but here's the dirty secret. One vial of my son's insulin is over $300. Um, his three-month supply of insulin is over $3,000. Oh, my God. So here's the dirty secret. If you don't have insurance, or let's say I drop his last vial, I'm paying out of pocket for that. And, and, and let me be clear. Insulin isn't a choice, right? I, I tell you. It's not a choice. We say insulin is like air. Like, you don't have a choice to breathe. You have to breathe to live. Insulin keeps him alive. How much insulin does he typically need in a month? So we go through about three vials a month. Mm. <laughs> yep, we go through about three vials a month. And again, it varies, like how much you eat. Um, if you have a, uh, you know, uh, a big meal, uh, if you're going through puberty, if you're stressed, all of those things can um, can can change your insulin requirements. But here's the thing. You need what you need to stay alive. Can you afford to stay alive? And that just shouldn't be a question. For those living with diabetes, this is a question they ask every day. But now, this issue is making headlines and getting national attention. Because the state of California is asking why the price of insulin is so high, too. In fact, they're suing pharmaceutical companies over the eye-watering cost of the drug. So... How did we get to a place where a drug that literally keeps people alive is out of reach for so many of them? I called up my colleague Dylan Scott to find out. Dylan covers healthcare here at Vox, and he's working on a big piece about the California lawsuit, insulin, and drug prices. In fact, he was the one who suggested I talk to Hillary. So we just heard from Hillary, who you spoke to for your latest piece about what states are doing about the price of insulin. How common is a struggle like hers when it comes to this medicine? So uh, about 34 million Americans, or 1 in 10, have diabetes. And of those people, you know, somewhere between 8 and 10 million uh, require insulin regularly uh, in order to manage their blood sugar levels and stay healthy and avoid any kind of medical emergency. Um, you know, for the people who have type 1 diabetes, which is the kind that usually occurs earlier in life, um, insulin is an absolute necessity. You know, their body can't really produce it, and so they will die if they can't, uh, you know, inject insulin into themselves. Um, and there's also a lot of people who have type 2 diabetes, which is the type that tends to develop a little later in life, uh, who also need uh, regular insulin injections. You know, my dad is actually one of those people. And we know that 
a lot of those people who need insulin, you know, literally to survive, struggle to pay for it. Um, you know, there are surveys that have shown about one in four people who have diabetes ration their insulin, which mm. means they either, you know, take smaller doses than they're actually supposed to, or they skip doses uh, in order to, you know, make whatever supply they have last a little bit longer. Uh, there was a Yale study uh, pretty recently that found uh, about one in 10 people, a little more than one in 10 people who use insulin have to spend this huge chunk of their income. They measured it as like 40% of their kind of disposable income um, to cover the cost of this essential medication. Uh, and there are, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have heard stories about Americans who have died because, you know, they didn't have health insurance and they were trying to ration their insulin to make what they had on hand to last a little bit longer. Um, and something went wrong and they went into, you know, the kind of diabetic shock and they died, you know, and that's the, the situation that we find ourselves in here in, in the United States. There really are a lot of inequities when it comes to accessing insulin. Can you talk about that a little bit? What does that landscape look like? Well, for starters, diabetes itself, the medical condition, is more prevalent among Black Americans than white Americans. So right there is the first disparity. There's a higher need among some populations within the United States than others. Um, but then when it actually comes to accessing a medication or other kinds of treatment, like those disparities persist. You know, it, when a new diabetes medication is introduced, studies have found that there's almost immediately a gap in usage between white people and Hispanic people and Black people. Um, or with insulin pumps, uh, which people with type 1 diabetes often use, there's the same kind of disparity. White people are more likely to use one, Hispanic and Black people are less likely to. These kinds of inequities can be found up and down our healthcare system, uh, across all kinds of different conditions. And so sadly, you know, it's not a surprise that we find the same kind of thing with diabetes. But certainly when you're talking about people, uh, you know, with less means, less disposable income, um, and who may not have the best health insurance, uh, as the cost of this, you know, essential medication that they need to survive goes up, you know, you got to find the money for it because you need it to live. Um, and that's where, you know, we see these kind of extraordinary stories about people in the wealthiest country in the world being forced to ration a medication that is a necessity for their very survival. I'm glad you said that because this is about the cost of prescription drugs overall in the United States. But insulin in particular is this really interesting example. And I would love to back up and get some history. How was this drug even developed? So insulin is more than 100 years old. It was discovered in 1921 by three men, uh, Frederick Banting, James Collip, and Charles Best. They were extracting um, insulin, which is like a naturally occurring thing, uh, from a dog and then giving it to a dog that had had its pancreas mm. removed for medical reasons. And basically they wanted to see like, okay, if we sort of take this, extract this insulin from one animal, give it to another animal, can this second animal like, does its body absorb it and use it as it's supposed to? And, you know, is the effect of its pancreas being removed negated? And they found that it did work. And in pretty short order, they tested it with 
human beings and found that like a young man who had type 1 diabetes, you know, if they gave him this insulin extract, it, you know, ameliorated his symptoms. Um, and so it was very clear very quickly that they had, you know, a really important medical breakthrough on their hands. But what is kind of remarkable, especially, you know, in these days and times where like anytime there's a new drug coming on the market, we immediately ask like, well, how much is it going to yeah. cost and how much of a barrier to access is this going to be? These guys said like, one of them literally said like, insulin belongs to the world. They recognized sort of how meaningful uh, this new drug could be, this new treatment could be for people. And so they sold the patent for literally one dollar uh, to the University of Toronto with the hopes of keeping the the cost of the drug as low as possible. And so, you know, they could have made a fortune and they chose not to. But, you know, that's a much longer story after that that has kind of put us in the position that we found today. It's, it's just really so fascinating that it's gone from this very, like, the creators of this drug started with very altruistic intentions, and that is not at all what insulin is now. Yeah. In spite of their good intentions, um, you know, the science didn't stop there. You know, there's been a lot of new developments. You know, we went from using animal insulin to human insulin, and now there are synthetic insulins. There's obviously been a lot of developments in terms of how the the medication is actually delivered um, to people with injectables and that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, experiments with making it, you know, faster acting or longer lasting. And it's in all that um, and all that work that has occurred in the decades since those three guys actually discovered that insulin could be effective as a treatment, you know, that's where the the major pharmaceutical companies got involved. And, you know, that's they they started to develop their own products with insulin, um, started to take advantage of some of the their scale and some of the rules within the the pharmaceutical market that the United States has set up. And over time, you know, insulin you know, despite that altruistic beginning, kind of became like a lot of the other drugs with a lot of the same problems in terms of, you know, the cost, affordability, and and ability to access uh, that we see. You know, what I do do think makes it most striking with insulin, which we've already kind of touched on, is like, this is not optional. You know, people either get this medicine or they die. And so you do have that patient population that's, you know, entirely dependent on your product. And given the way that uh, we've set up the pharmaceutical market in the U.S., companies can take advantage of that, and they certainly have. Up next, what's making insulin so expensive in the first place? Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. 
They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. This is The Weeds. I'm John Glenhill. And today, we're talking with Vox's Dylan Scott about the price of insulin. I wanted to know what exactly makes insulin so expensive. So it is complicated. Um, you know, it depends on your insurance coverage, whether you have private insurance, whether you're uninsured or you're on Medicaid or Medicare. All of that can make a difference in terms of how much you pay for insulin. Um, it can depend on where you live because there are some states that have actually instituted caps on out-of-pocket spending for insulin, but a lot of other states haven't. So that can be one determination about how much you're going to pay. In general, I think it's fair to say that people who are uninsured and therefore have to just pay the full cost of whatever you know insulin product they they, uh, rely upon is. Um, and people who have private insurance, generally with higher deductibles, those are the people who are going to be the most vulnerable to the cost of insulin. You know, if you've got a high deductible, you might have to spend thousands of dollars out of your own pocket before your insurance benefit kicks in. And so th- these are the people who are, from the very start, um, having to face the high cost of insulin directly. But, you know, for anybody, um, even for folks on Medicare who, who might have good coverage until a recent change in the a lot that I know that we'll talk about. Um, you know, you those a lot of those people just pay a percentage of what their medication costs. And so if the total cost of your prescriptions cost thousands of dollars over the course of the year, that could put you as the individual patient on the hook for hundreds of dollars over the course of the year. And certainly, you know, for people who don't necessarily have a, have a lot of resources, any amount of money um, can be a burden. You know, I've seen other studies not specific to insulin and diabetics necessarily, but, you know, studying the, basically the effects of uh, price increases on people's utilization of medication. And it's found even charging as little as $10 more um, for a drug can cause people to discontinue their use or do other kind of rationing techniques. So even a small cost burden can have big clinical effects. And that's why, you know, and then when we're talking about people having, you know, who are uninsured, potentially having to spend, you know, hundreds of dollars for every vial of insulin, that's where we're really getting into trouble. You know, just to give one particular example, you know, there was a lot of news coverage about um, a young man named Alex mm-hmm. Smith who died in Minnesota after trying to rationalize his insulin. And what had happened with him was he had recently gotten old enough that he was kicked off his parents' health insurance. Uh, he hadn't signed up for new coverage yet, and so he was trying to to manage his insulin intake because he knew it would be hard to afford it when he needed more. And you know, that's what led to that tragedy happening. So that's, you know, a particularly dramatic example, obviously. But for folks who uh, who have a limited amount of their own income to spend on their medicines, you know, those are the kind of choices that they're confronted with. That's so heartbreaking. I remember turning 27 and finally getting kicked off my parents' insurance. And uh, 
I I hate to say it after that, you know, it was like, okay, do I need to go to the doctor? Like, do I have to get this medicine? Is this something I can do? And the fact that for some people, it's not just simple as like, oh, you should probably get a checkup. It's these are their lives. These are their lives. Right, exactly. And that's where this is distinct from a, is even some of the other conversations we have about, you know, the affordability of healthcare in general. Like this is something you have to take regularly and the con- you know, the stakes of it are life and death for the people who need insulin. I, I want to break down the cost of insulin how much does it take to manufacture? Is it is it very expensive to make? So it is not expensive to make. You know, there's been a lot of developments, like I said, from that canine extract that um, the guys who discovered insulin were first using. Um, you know, we've moved on to human insulin, and now synthetic insulin has kind of become dominant here in the last 20 years or so. Um, and, you know, there are some real advantages for those developments. Like I said, um, you know, Synthetic insulin has a very particular or very predictable onset window. So, like, people know as soon as, you know, once they take it, there's a kind of very specific amount of time before it starts to kick in. And, you know, for a disease that you, or for a medication that you have to take pretty regularly, um, you know, especially sometimes timed, like when you're having a meal or something like that, that uh, predictability can be really valuable. But those, synthetic insulins are also more expensive mm. to produce. And then we've had the the developments with uh, the delivery mechanisms as well, like the specialized injectables. And there's even been some experiments with like a long-lasting insulin that would actually sort of stay in your body and automatically deploy um, when your blood sugar levels re- uh, reach a thir- certain threshold. Oh, wow. So there has been, you know, innovation. There have been attempts to improve this product, make it more um, kind of adaptable, make it, make it better suited uh, for people's lives. And the manufacturing process is very specific. Like, you know, it has to be made under very specific uh, conditions, you know, and the, the final product needs to, you know, needs to be just right because this is something that people are injecting into their bodies that's interacting with their uh, cardiovascular system. And, their, um, and so, you know, you can't, there's not a lot of room for error. But nevertheless, in spite of all, you know, in spite of the, all that innovation and, and the need to have a very um, kind of specific final product, we know that the cost of insulin is somewhere per vial between like $2 and $6, according to one recent estimate that was published in the BMJ. It's pretty cheap. And yet, you know, over the last 20 years or so, there's one uh, insulin product that's seen its price increase by 1,000% from 1999 to 2019. And there are some kinds of insulin now uh, that cost as much as $300 per dose at the wholesaler level. So it's safe to say all of it depends on the specific product. But, you know, the, the price for these drugs is generally orders of magnitude more expensive than the production cost. How... How do we get here? How are drug prices set in the United States? So drug prices are not really set in the U.S., except to say that, like, the companies that produce drugs have a lot of leeway to set whatever list price they want, um, so long as they don't have any generic competitors. Um, And so, you know, the the company, if they've got, you know, a new product or a company that's not got any generic competition, they can pretty much set whatever list price they want, or at least, you know, whatever list price they think the market will bear. And as we've discussed in this case, you're talking about 
an essential medicine that people just absolutely have to have. The demand is always going to be pretty steady. And so that gives you a lot of leeway to set you know, a list price as high as you want it to. Now, list prices, as drug companies will quickly tell you, list prices are not generally what most people mm. pay for prescription drugs. You know, uh, drug manufacturers sell their drugs to wholesale distributors who then sell those, uh, distribute those drugs to individual pharmacies. Um, and then when a person, go, you know, an individual patient goes to the pharmacy, fills a prescription, um, you know, they'll have their copay and their coinsurance or their coinsurance um, that they have to pay there, you know, when they're checking out. And then their health insurer is supposed to pick up the rest of the cost. Um, now, an important element to all this is um, what's called pharmacy benefit mm. managers. Yeah. Um, what What is that? A PBMs, like, <laughs> yes, PBMs. who are these people? It's one of those things I feel like is, you know, been making headlines more and maybe like passing through people's computer screens a little more often in recent years, but it is still kind of like an opaque thing. Um, so in brief, health insurers will basically con sign a contract with like an outside company, a pharmacy benefit manager, who is basically responsible for handling their entire prescription drug business for their customers. You know, they've got, the insurer's got to worry about hospitals and doctors and the pharma piece of it is so complex and so distinct from the other parts of healthcare that they cover that they've kind of outsourced this responsibility to PBMs. And basically what PBMs do is they try to negotiate discounts with the drug manufacturers and the wholesalers on behalf of their clients, the health insurers. The idea is that, you know, hopefully they can, especially because PBMs, you know, have a lot of health insurance customers as clients, you know, they've got a lot of scale, a lot of clout, that they can negotiate pretty big uh, rebates from the drug companies on behalf of health insurers and ultimately the patients. And, you know, they often do, like, the, the rebates on insulin can be sizable as much as half the, pr uh, the list price that was initially set when the drug came on the market. But this still kind of distorts things because um, the pharmacy ban benefit managers, you know, when they negotiate these discounts between the health insurers and the drug companies, they take a cut. So, like, the discount is not actually as big as it might look on paper because the PBM is taking a cut. Yeah, and I was going to say, what is their incentive for getting patients cheaper drugs. I mean, it sounds like this is all a bunch of people who kind of want to take a cut of this money. Exactly. I saw this great uh, kind of description of it as I was researching this piece, which was basically like, we've created this weird system where basically everybody except the patient benefits from these higher prices. The drug manufacturer does, the wholesalers do, and the pharmacy benefit managers who are ostensibly acting on behalf of the patients and their health insurers, they benefit from pr higher prices too, because the higher the price is, the bigger no uh, the discount that they negotiate, the bigger their cut of that discount. Um, and so, you know, company, drug companies, wholesalers, the PBMs, all of their profits increase if the cost of insulin goes up and nothing is stopping mm. them from raising the cost of insulin. So it probably shouldn't be a surprise uh, that they're taking advantage of that. You mentioned before that list prices can often fluctuate and change based off the price of a generic version of the drug. Is there not a generic version of insulin? What, why, if that's the case? 
It's a great question. So yes, you you know you asked about how prescription drug prices are set in the U.S. and really the the main thing that the United States does is it allows generic competition. So like basically the way that our whole pharma market works is that like you know a company develops a new drug and we give them like say a ten year monopoly where they can basically sell it at whatever price the market may bear. But then after that period, that exclusivity period expires, other companies can more or less just copy the current drug as it already exists and sell it at a lower price. And we do know from research that like once there are a few generic competitors on the market uh, for a, a brand name drug, we do see prices for all of the drugs fall substantially. But you do need like several generic competitors mm. or the effect on prices isn't that big. And right now, we don't really have generic competitors for insulin. Um, part of this is like patent gamesmanship, where like basically these companies will like make little tweaks to their product, or like they'll especially, you know, make some change to uh, the delivery device. And that helps to extend their exclusivity period. Like, you know, each of these insulin products, you know, there's a specific product that's meant to go with a specific device. Like you can't use an e- can't use Eli Lilly insulin and Sanofi, you know, mm. needles or whatever. Like you have to get you have to get both. So if they manage to extend their patent on one of these devices, it's just as good as if they extended the patent on the actual medication itself. Um, so that kind of gamesmanship is is part of what you know puts off any generic competition. Um, but the other piece of it is the way that the FDA actually regulates insulin. Is there something about insulin in particular that makes it susceptible to this gamesmanship? So insulin is what's called a biologic drug, which is basically means that it's made out of living material instead of like small molecules mm. like mo- more conventional drugs are. And for there are different rules for generic blo- biologic drugs, which are called biosimilars, than there are for more conventional generic drugs. So like your doctor doesn't care if you take Tylenol or like the store brand acetaminophen. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't it doesn't make any difference. It's viewed as the the same clinical effect, the same safety profile. Um, but with insulin, there is not that same guarantee of you know automatic substitution or what's called interchangeability. Um, and that's because you know because biologics are just made up of different things um, and made up of living things. Uh, the the final product depends a lot on like the specific processes that were used to produce the medicine. So a new company, if it wants to offer a generic version of insulin, they have to go through a lot of work to prove that their product is interchangeable with the original. You know, it it has to have the same clinical effect and the same safety profile. And like I've seen estimates that like it might cost like a few million dollars to uh, really get like a generic conventional drug off the ground, but it costs, you know, 10 times that to get a biosimilar off the ground. And then on top of that, you know, if you don't have this interchangeable label, you know, if, if, if the FDA hasn't said, yes, your generic insulin is exactly the same as the insulin that's produced by the, these major brand name companies, um, then, you know, your health insurance might not cover it. Your doctors might not want to prescribe it. And that, again, adds to just like, it's harder for a new competitor to get in the market where when there's a ton of startup costs and this really high threshold for getting health insurers to cover it or doctors to prescribe it. And then just to add one more layer to all of this and to explain why we don't really have generic insulin, you know, the, the three companies uh, that have been in this business for a long time, you know, they could, if they see a new generic competitor coming, they could 
just cut the price that they're selling their drugs for. You know, I think that speaks to the fact that the prices they're currently using are pretty inflated, Mm -hmm. but they could cut their prices pretty substantially, still, you know, make a margin. And that's going to just lessen or, you know, decrease the the business proposition for this new generic Mm -hmm. competitor. And that's why we're in this, still in this position, a hundred years after uh, the drug was first discovered, that there's only a handful of companies that produce it for the United States. And they therefore have a ton of leverage in terms of how much it costs. I want to talk about the PBM of it all a little bit more. So, or I guess lack thereof, Medicare, which insures adults over the age of 65, cannot negotiate drug prices. Why is that? So, (laughs) because Congress told Medicare that it could. Okay. Um, okay. So back in 2003, when the Medicare Part D, the prescription drug benefit, was created, um, at the behest of the pharmaceutical industry, uh, they, Congress inserted a provision that expressly forbid Medicare from negotiating directly with drug manufacturers for the prices of the drugs that the program would purchase. Um, so that was just, from the start, a kind of across-the-board prohibition on the government negotiating drug prices on behalf of Medicare beneficiaries. Um, Now, that did change here just in the last year. um, As part of the Inflation Reduction Act, Medicare will now be allowed to negotiate the price of a few small select number of drugs. Um, And that bill also included uh, for Medicare beneficiaries a a $35 cap on the per-month cost of Mm. insulin. So, like, those are two... Big improvements, like they do, they do kind of change the landscape um, in a way that you know, from fundamentally, from the way it was before. But they are very new, so like they're just starting to take effect. We don't really know yet, kind of how significant uh, the impact is going to be. Um, but yeah, up until now, like Medicare didn't have much uh, much to do as these companies were steadily increasing the price of insulin because Congress had said you are not allowed to do that. Um, Medicaid, which is the other major government program, does get automatic discounts under federal law, um, part of, you know, in recognition of its role in providing health coverage to uh, our lowest income residents. Um, So that's sort of the one exception. Um, But otherwise, you know, with private insurance and with Medicare up until now, um, we basically had a situation where most of the health system either didn't have much power to lower cost or was actively incentivized to keep costs high on the case of drug manufacturers and PBMs and the wholesalers. Next, how states are tackling the price of insulin. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care 
a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're back. This is The Weeds. And we're talking with Vox senior correspondent Dylan Scott about the price of insulin. The cost of the drug has been high for a while, but a move by the state of California is pushing it to the forefront once again. California is suing three of the major drug companies and three pharmacy benefit managers over the medicine's costs. The argument is that these companies are breaking the state's law on unfair competition. Well, so California is bringing the case, you know, largely in its capacity as a major purchaser of insulin. You know, they've got like 14 million people on Medicaid. You know, they've got a million or so people who are uh, insured through the state employee health insurance plan. So California itself uh, pays a lot of money for insulin. And so that's their their standing to challenge uh, these pricing practices. And basically, they're, they're kind of accusing the insulin manufacturers, as well as the PBMs that we've discussed, of kind of running like a racket, basically, to artificially keep the the cost of insulin high. You know, they point out the disparity between the cost of producing the medication and the um, the price that it's actually sold at. You know, they point to some of these practices like the, the patent gamesmanship um, as, you know, an example of an unfair trade practice, as they call it. Um, and they note in their complaint, which was also something I've read in some several of the analyses I've seen on, on this subject, that like, over the years, uh, the prices of different insulin proce- products have seemed to increase sort of at similar levels, at similar times. And, you know, I'm not a lawyer by any means, um, but you can see where that starts to look suspicious. Um, that, like, there's just a couple of companies producing this drug, and they seem to always be hiking their prices around the same time at about the same rate. Um, and so you combine that all together, and they, the state of California is basically accusing these companies and the PBMs of uh, this unfair uh, commercial enterprise um, that they say, you know, relies on these illegal um, kind of business tactics in order to justify and continue hiking the price of insulin. And what they're asking the courts to do is basically to intervene to stop these unfair practices and to give the state restitution for its past uh, overpayments of insulin because of this behavior. And so that's, again, where California's role as a purchaser of uh, insulin has made it really invested in this issue. And I think that's why the state took such a dramatic action. So a solution that some states see to this is manufacturing their own insulin. In fact, California is one of the states that is very much interested in pursuing that. How would that even work? I, I This sounds very American, but the idea of a state manufacturing, like the government making medicine, it just it's it's hard for my brain to compute. How how would this I hear you? No, I I had the same reaction when I first heard about this idea. So I I get where you're coming from. And yeah, I mean what California is doing is it's really interesting. So like they have taken the the two most important steps, at least so far. Like they have authorized the state 
to produce its own insulin. And they've actually set aside funding for it. Like, that's huge, especially the funding piece. Like, you can create all the authorities you want through legislation, but if you don't have any money behind it, it's not gonna, it's not gonna make that much of a difference. But they have initially set aside $100 million towards this effort. So they seem serious about it. Governor Gavin Newsom has put a lot of his political capital into this plan. Um, but it's gonna be a long road to get there. And really, it's gonna kind of be a, a two-step plan, mm-hmm. I think think um, from talking to folks there. So in the short term, what the state might do is actually contract with an existing company to try to manufacture cheaper insulin. Um, So there's actually one company already in existence called Civica RX, which is like a cooperative between a bunch of different hospital systems. Um, And they are already in the process of uh, developing their own generic insulin. Um, I think their their goal is to get that to the market here in the next couple of years. So in the short term, what California might do is take a chunk of this money that's been appropriated and sign a contract with some existing company to just give them cheaper uh, insulin in the near term, um, you know, to try to deliver relief for patients as quickly as possible while they work on the long-term vision, which would be to have California actually build and own its own factories that produce insulin where they would employ their own civil workforce to do that work. And they would sell the final product for basically just the cost that it actually took to produce it. And so, you know, that's that's a tall task. Like we've already talked about how precise the manufacturing of insulin needs to be. And the need, you know, the folks I talked to there emphasize that need to achieve interchangeability, where you would actually say, like, yes, our new state-produced insulin is exactly the same as the insulin you get from the existing main, major manufacturers. And you know, if you can do that, then you know you can hopefully get health insurers to cover it. Um, and like that starts to really make a big difference. And if they but if they actually, you know, realize this vision, they would have a a true public option for insulin. Um, And I talked with uh, Dana Brown at the Democracy Collaborative, who's who's been a a real force for this idea about this. And she made the point to me that, like, California is kind of an ideal setting Mm. to try this out. Like, it's big. uh, It has a lot of money. um, And it has a, you know, the state just again, going by that lawsuit, you know, they've got 14 million people, as you know, some substantial number of whom are diabetics who need insulin. So like they're they are invested in this monetarily already. And you know, on top of it being big and having a lot of money um, and a lot of money at stake, they've already they've also got a, a pretty stable political environment. You know, I think we can expect for the foreseeable future for for Democrats to stay in control. Like I said, uh, Governor Newsom has uh, invested a lot of his time and energy into this. So California should give this idea of like a, a public option for insulin, the public manufacturing of a generic insulin product. They should give it a chance to really see it through and see if it could work. And I think that's what makes this a really interesting time uh, for this idea. Are there any examples of this? Have any states done this with a drug before? So I actually learned in the course of reporting this story uh, that Michigan used to produce its own vaccines until the 1990s. Um, And actually, Massachusetts still does. It's kind of subcontracted through the UMass uh, college system. But like in effect, there is still the public production of vaccines in Massachusetts, too. Um, And so this isn't like entirely unprecedented, but it is something that like, you know, we talked about, you know, that we're at 100 years of, of insulin. And like, you know, back then there was kind of a much different attitude about like what 
government should do, what government was capable of doing. You know, I think there was a lot more optimism back then about the government's ability to sort of to kick into gear and to solve problems and kind of be an active actor in addressing issues like this. And, you know, that's over time. That's something that I think states have have drifted away from. You know, I think it's telling that in the 90s, Michigan dropped this idea and basically just outsourced it all to the private mm. sector. But because of the the gravity um, and the the scale of the insulin crisis that we're living through, it's it's brought states back around. And we're kind of coming back full circle now to where they're like, you know, there's this evident public health problem and the private market isn't doing enough to address it. And so we're going to we're going to step in. Um, and I do think that makes it, again, a, a really interesting experiment, though we're still early and it kind of still remains to be seen how well it works. If this works for California, could they sell it to other states? So yeah, the the uh, legislation that's passed would you know leaves the door open for that to happen, um, and there are other states uh, that are exploring the same idea about the public production of medication. Uh, Washington and Maine are two specific examples, and so you know in talking to folks, there is this kind of long term vision that I think is is kind of cool, though it's a, it's a long way off. Which would basically be like you can imagine a scenario where like say California uh, produces insulin and sells it to other states like Washington. And so Washington decides like, well, we don't need to produce insulin because we buy that from California. But maybe there's some other essential medication Mm. that has experienced a market failure. And so we can focus our manufacturing energy on producing that. And then we could, you know, we could sell that to California. And suddenly you have this kind of interstate market um, that would probably be concentrated on, you know, essential medicines. Like I think I can't really imagine a scenario where, you know, states are getting involved in the cancer treatment game or something like that. But like for these medicines that like people have to take regularly, you know, for lifestyle reasons, for a chronic condition that's going to last a long time. And again, you know, the stakes of whether or not they can get it are a matter of, of life and death. Um, I think states are, are really picking up their interest in doing something about it. And you could, I could imagine these kind of mutually beneficial relationships uh, developing as, you know, states decide what they're going to prioritize and they get better at it and specialize at it. Um, but that's, that's a long way away. I do think the proponents of these plans, you know, that would be their dream. Um, But I think first we got to start with California and see if they can make this insulin idea work. Yeah, I'm I'm really interested to see how it goes and to have you back on the weeds to check in about it. Dylan Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for us today. Thank you to Dylan Scott and Hillary Koch for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Christian Ayala engineered this episode. Caitlin Pinsey-Moog fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, John Quillen Hill. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. 